In my life, I've gotten a lot of value from just coming into contact with things that made me think deeply and take the time to think about things and like maybe put me on and think laterally about other things. And like, that's what I want to do. What does it take to become a successful writer or artist? There are some destructive myths out there about what a creative career is supposed to look like. And we're kept in our lane by the undermining belief that as artists, we're somehow incapable of building autonomous, sustainable careers if we choose the work that's closest to our hearts. So we're gonna tear down those myths and get the truth by going to the source. Incredible professional creatives who followed every path but the expected one to success on their own terms. I'm cartoonist, author, and coach for creatives, Jessica Abel, and this is The Autonomous Creative. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking with my longtime friend, cartoonist Ronald Wimberly. Ronald is best known for Prince of Cats, which is an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet set in New York in the 1980s, which he's now developing as a film with legendary entertainment and with Spike Lee directing. What's that like? I gotta know. He's got several other major projects in the works as well, like his giant tabloid journal and art magazine on identity and visual culture, Lab, where all that intense intellectual ferment slash ultra cool that is the experience of Ronald is finally given a fitting container. As an example, it's super oversized and sports incredible graphic design and serious intellectual depth, yet it's printed on newsprint and is full of comics. Since we recorded this episode live last year, Ronald and the lab team at Beehive Books, our interview with publisher Josh O'Neill is coming soon, have been working on Gratuitous Ninja, a stealth epic, which is a graphic saga now finally coming into print in the form of 600 accordion-folded pages that tell the story of Brooklyn's last shinobi family. Ronald is currently funding the project on Kickstarter, and there are a ton of incredible extras. Check out the link in our show notes. I first met Ronald in 2007 at a fancy restaurant where we were being treated to a fancy dinner by a French publisher. Those were the days. Later, I discovered his first big release, Sentences, The Life of M.F. Grimm, and that same exact publisher put us together to work on my book, Trish Trash, which we worked on together for a few years. Over the years, my conversations with Ronald have ranged over history, literature, pop culture, politics, creativity, and making a name for yourself as an artist. Ronald is one of my absolute favorite people to dig in with. He's way smarter than me, calls me on all my crap, and he's got stamina. We could do this all night, and we have. So I'm thrilled to bring you just a slice of that amazing ongoing conversation right after this message. What does it really take to make it as a creative? This is the burning question that's driven me for forever, really. I used to have to try to ferret out the answers one by one when I got a chance to hang out with a fellow artist or writer, and when I judged it safe enough to ask that delicate question, we're all dying to know the answer to. How do you make it work? Every guest I've interviewed so far has mentioned this. One of the secrets to how they've gotten as far as they have is that they've asked every creative pro they met every chance they got. Asking the question often enough is a game changer. We learn so much each time, starting with the fact that whatever we thought was working for that person, we were probably wrong. We each imagine the other person has some kind of secret and that they've made the leap over the giant chasm between beginner and pro and feel safe on the other side. And inevitably, neither person feels that way at all and is amazed to realize that from the outside, they seem to have it all figured out. 
I'm pulling that seemingly taboo conversation out of the shadows on this show. It's also the conversation we take further every day inside the community of Authentic Visibility. Authentic Visibility is our group coaching program designed to help dedicated creatives who are very reasonably wary of marketing and promotion into powerful advocates for their vision and their work, setting the stage for huge career growth and a major role in the larger cultural conversation. Got a major project dropping soon and you're determined not to let it founder? Get the support you need to create a reasonable promotion plan that aligns with your goals and fits your life. Don't know how to talk about your work without squirming? You'll practice and refine your messaging in a safe, supportive space inside Authentic Visibility. Hate or fear social media and don't know what else to do? There are lots of options and you can workshop solutions that suit you and your approach with your peers. You can learn all about Authentic Visibility and get a sense of my teaching philosophy in a free 90-minute class specifically for creatives called How to Get People Wildly Obsessed with Your Work. And in it, you'll get a head start on developing clear, compelling language for sharing your work with your audience so that they get it and they want more. If you want your work to make its mark in the world, check out the free Wildly Obsessed class and supercharge your ability to connect with new fans in just 90 minutes. Go to jessicaable.com slash wildly and join the free class now. That's jessicaable.com slash wildly. Okay, let's start the show. Hello, welcome to the Autonomous Creative, and I am here with Ronald Wimberly. I remember one of the first times we met talking about Trish Trash and kind of getting ready to start on that. We were talking about roller derby on Mars, you know, silly stuff like that. And somehow Ron started bringing in all of these deep cultural references. And I'm struggling to follow all this stuff and not look like an idiot. And I remember he brings up the Decameron. And I'd actually read the Decameron 10 years earlier or so, but I remembered nothing about it. And I was like trying to pretend (laughs) that I still remembered what was in it while he's like, you know how this, that, and the connection between the Decameron and what we're talking about and blah, blah, blah. It was fun. It was inspiring, but it was also kind of scary to get in such deep intellectual waters so quickly. So we've since had many more conversations, some deeper than others, never predictable, never boring. And so I'm really excited to see what we get into today. So Ron, welcome. Hey, how's it going, Jessica? <laughs> I don't even remember that. I'm like, no, what, was I mean, that, what was I possibly talking about? I have no idea. <laughs> Something about journey, you know, love story. I don't know what it was. Anyway, I, mm. I, I honestly was like just trying to think. I have read that, right? I ha- I know I read that. What's it about again? Uh, yeah. That so. sounds smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm going to go with the myth, though. Let's go. Um, so let's just start with a few sort of background questions, because I know there are going to be new people here who haven't met you before, and I want to get everybody kind of up to speed on what you're doing right now. What do you do all day right now? What are you working on? Right now, um, I'm working on film and animation mostly. I'm I'm starting ramping up production on a short that I'm working on. Uh, I'm developing another short on the side, and I'm developing like a uh, like a couple television show pitches. One of them animated, and one of them partially animated so that's the pitches are or the I'm, shows are going to be animated the shows yeah okay. that's what i'm working on right now a lot of writing some drawing i'm about to start doing a lot more drawing because uh in the next week i'll be starting storyboard process on one of the shorts 
So that's what I'm working on right now. I didn't know you were working on shorts. What are these? What are they? Well, one of them I I can't say too much about. Um, okay. But one of them is I was, you know, I worked with Mark Osborne, um, his director did Kung Fu Panda, the first film, and um, the the real Kung Fu Panda, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was. You know, I was just talking about life and my career. We had been talking about different things. Like I had kind of put, you know, people have reached out for me to do, to work on several projects. And I was kind of like, yo, I just want to, like, I want to move past being one project. They were looking for me as a designer. And, and I was like, I can do, I can do this. Like I have the vision to do more than just like kind of this particular portion. And he's like, well, I started out like my short is essentially how I was able to show people that I could direct. So I was like, all right, well, let me let me go ahead and um, do that. I was like, I don't even know. He's like, well, I, we had been talking about this New York Times cartoon that I did that like they they couldn't put out. And he's like, oh, that's a great story. You should do that. And it started to echo the lighten up strip, which was a comic that I did. It was on Medium. It was the nib. And um, <laughs> it just started to seem like that. It's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to do this. And I reached out to a buddy. Um, I reached out to Titmouse, you know, Chris Pranowski, Chris P over at Titmouse. And we talked about it. And he was like, yeah, well, we can do that. So that's my production partner. And um, yeah, I, that's what I've been working on for the first quarter of this year. And, so um, it's related to lighten up. So we're going to get into this in a minute. I'm going to get a, for anybody who doesn't is not familiar with this strip. We'll talk about it a little bit more. But um, but the the short you're working on is is related to that. Yeah. Well, I would say structurally and kind of like how it both structurally and how it um, how it came to be. You know, because like uh, lighten ups. You know, I had talked to Matt Boers. Uh, about All right, so let's uh, let me give some background here. So before people, in case people are not familiar with this, so lighten up is sort of a one pager, maybe two to three pages if it were printed, but it's kind of one piece, right? One strip, like, and it's about your experience of working on She Hulk, and it actually is about my experience doing just three, maybe three or four pages in a the death of Wolverine, like a, a jam book that had a bunch of different artists in it. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Because there's, because she held comes up at the end. I think I was thinking about that. In the yeah. Which was a prior. Yeah. Yeah. Like I yeah. just used it as a foil. <laughs> right. But in any yeah. case, it's a, it's a situation where you had, um, you were doing coloring as well as drawing on the strip and you had mm. colored a character with a sort of medium brown skin color. Yeah. And your editor came back and said, can you lighten her? Up yeah. and and gave yeah. you sort of like a hex code. You did this really cool thing with the color hex codes and mm. which hex code belongs to what and what does it mean to be quote unquote black or quote unquote mm. white. And then you go into deep waters with I've never had a black editor, you know, at a mainstream mm. comics company and all this other stuff. Mm. And it feels so related and so connected to the whole story of your tabloid paper lab. And of course, I don't know how it fits into, but you have this other book, um, Black History in Its Own Words, that mm. is also was also in the nib and sort of feels part of that whole story. Is that mm. sort of accurate? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's part of the it's part of just like what the the work that I do. Lab kind of you know, 
I guess I have two two types of work, right? Like I have the work that I'm just like kind of exploring just stories, stories that I want to tell. And then I have like work that's kind of critical that I feel like I have to do sometimes to either give context to my work and work in general, almost like maybe trying to cultivate a type of readership, you know, or criticism around work in general. Like maybe in a way, in a way it's, you know, like kind of giving, you know, advocating for people to read my work, (laughs) read work the way that I think will, will make my work more valuable (laughs) culturally. Um, So, uh, and lighten up would fit into the second half of that, because I mean, it, it, and the reason why I compared it to this other short is because not only because it's about sort of formally what I'm doing, there's like a political aspect that kind of intersects with the formal, um, but also because like, and this is part of the formal aspect of uh, this recent one, more so than lighten up, which is like, it's another sort of looking at looking at myself, which is like, um, yeah, Matt Bors was like kind of, you know, it was hit, like he, he saw the value in the lighten up strip and Osborne, Mark Osborne saw like the um, value in this kind of telling this Times, New York Times story. And Mark Osborne was your editor there? No, Mark Osborne is, was a director. Um, he's a friend and I was working on one of his films. Okay. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we just started, we had, we had met in Columbus, Ohio. He was there to, as a guest, I think at um, the comic convention that's there. And we were both at a dinner and I'm like, this guy's just a really nice guy. <laughs> this guy's a really cool guy. I like him a lot. And we kind of been friends ever since. And I worked on um, I worked on one of his projects. But you know, we keep up and we talk about uh, we talk about the difficulties or the complexities or the problems and the paradoxes in wanting to tell stories and um, tell stories that at the very least aren't or, or doing maybe to doing the least uh, reproduction of pernicious ideas that are embedded in aesthetics, right? So, and yeah, and he was like, let's do this time story, which to me at, uh, or you should do that because it'll be interesting. It'll be a as great a short, short. As a film yeah, short. And like yeah. how, how that rhymed with my experience of lighting up was, is that like it was, um, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying anything bad about my homie Mark or Matt either, but like it was interesting to what I think. I mean, they're two white men, right? And meaning it was Matt Wars and Mark yeah, Osborne. and Mark, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And um, I remember on Lighten Up, early in the process, Matt was like, "Oh, you should put a picture. You like, you should put a picture of yourself in the story." And I've mm-hmm. always been kind of like, even at even at that early point in working, I kind of was a little bit conflicted about the um, the value of like my identity mm-hmm. in, you know, in publishing, but also in terms of like, like the epistemological value, like the value in an argument. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
So I didn't want to put myself, <laughs> I didn't want to put like my face there, you know? Yeah. Um, so this, this actually um, gets to something that I, I was thinking about as I was doing research for this interview and going back to, through our long history of being friends and stuff. And I remember, uh, so I'm looking up your website and stuff now and seeing what you have there and looking at your current links and stuff. And your current website is called, you know, Ronald J. Wimberly. And um, that's very, very clear. But I remember back when I met you, everything was deep high mm. and you had about 15 emails. I never knew which one was mm. the one that was going to get to I you. I still have too many emails. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was, you know, there's Grattanin, which I still don't really get. And there's you know, mm. Trismegistus and like all this yeah. other, you had all these names and things. And even on your website of today, there's no picture of you, I think. No, it's just um, like that. It's that one drawing. Cause I don't really yeah. use it. I don't, I feel like no one, I don't really want anyone to contact me. Like I, the people who can contact me, I feel they can contact me. Like I really don't want anyone to find me, you know, but I feel like I need to have that out there. You know, like, and I've done okay. I support myself rather well without people being able to find me. So like, I kind of like it that way. But well, people can point, find you on social yeah. media, no problem. I mean, they can find you and be in touch with you if they need to be. And For I now. get that, not wanting your emails out there or whatever. I completely get that. But it's not just that. It's also there's these like sort of alter ego layers kind of. And I, and I feel like maybe that's what was getting challenged in that moment where he's like, why don't you put yourself in the strip? And you, mm. you know, then you have to kind of be out there just as yourself and and talking about your own personal experience in some way. Actually, actually I don't, I don't see it as being, uh, having that image out there being myself. I see it as, um, having a, an image that people can, they will, they will garner some sort of a, an idea or a value as a symbol. Like me being mm -hmm. like a black figure in that space, like a black male figure means like, Oh, this guy knows what he's talking about. Like, this is the real rap. Like it's coming from a black dude. So like, he knows what and he's you don't think, about. but you don't want to claim that authority. You don't want. You don't think that because, at least partly because you're a black dude, that you do have that authority, or no? I'm gonna say the authority would be in like the truth. Yeah, in, but yeah. is that not part of the truth? <laughs> no, I would say no. I mean the the truth. I mean it would be. I would say probability wise, like I have a a higher probability of maybe seeing some things, you know, than someone who doesn't necessarily have my body or my experience, certainly, but not necessarily, you know what I so mean? So it's too so, much of a shortcut kind of, like when somebody sees your face or, well, or associates also, you as a physical person? So I think it's, first of all, I think it's, there's no way to escape it, right? There's no way mm -hmm. to escape what it is. But like, I, I saw the, I saw putting my picture or like a, um, cipher you know what i mean for me that kind of expressed that i am a black body and if you look at lighten up it's very i come in and out you know like there's some that are more like representative of what i look like but the first one is li literally just a silhouette where you see my color purposefully right because like that is that's what the value of it was you know what i mean mm -hmm. like for better or worse that's what the value of it was for like say uh like a liberal publication, you know, like the New York Times, it's like, okay, well, there's value in, all right, when there are uprisings in the street, uh, there's, and, and your paper, you want to seem fair, or you want to like, it's Black History Month, there's value, you know what I mean? Like, 
if it imagine if it was Black History Month and some publication reaches out and asks me to do something, and I'm like, great, thanks, but don't let anyone know that I'm black. <laughs> They're gonna be like, wait a minute, but the whole point, you know, how <laughs> we're reaching out to you is so that, you know. Um, yeah, it, it, but it feels like tokenism. Uh, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure what tokenism means. Yeah, <laughs> like in, well, in the case. Of I mean, I, I this, I'm just going yeah. from my own experience as a woman in mm -hmm. comics, and and the the duality of of being situations where people are asking me to have to take part in something, both because I am me and I have done the work that I have done, and I'm, it's very specific and very you know it it is what it is. It's it's my body of work, but also because I'm female. <laughs> You know, because mm -hmm. they don't have enough women involved in whatever it is, and they need a female voice there. And so it's always, for me at least, it's always mixed. It's never a thing where it's 100% either thing. You know, it's not 100% that that the that I'm there. They they wouldn't ask you know go walk down the street and just get a comics woman comics reader and get her on this panel. Mm -hmm. They're asking me because of my work, but at the same time would they have asked me if I weren't female? Yes. But there's also sometimes I, I, you know, it seems to me that the, that sort of value structure could be counterproductive to the work that I'm trying to do. Not always, but sometimes, you know? Um, and like, so for instance, uh, say if even it just becomes something difficult to work around sometimes, you know what I mean? And in that case, I was like, mm, I want to get this point across, you know what I mean? And I don't want to get the point across in like a way that seems uh, partisan in a way that disrupts sort of just like the reason. Yeah, like, no, I, I totally the argument. That. I think the argument is airtight, you know what I mean? Like regardless, you know what I mean? If Matt had made that argument, I think it would have been airtight, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, Matt being my white so, husband. Just in case everybody's wondering. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? I think it would have been an airtight, you know, like, and also that's the type of work, you know, um, speaking of, we do similar or thinking about like formally, I want the form to do the work too. And that's something that I don't know if people are even thinking of. And by the way, I feel like that cartoon. Meaning lighten up. Lighten up. I feel like uh -huh. lighten up. There are things that I'm doing with this animated short that I'm trying to, it's another experiment to see if like it's even, if it even makes sense for me to make these types of things because like lighten up, most of the time when people talk to me about lighten up, I feel like the point of the cartoon was completely missed. So really, and I, and I yes. And I feel like part of it, um, part of it is because of like how, you know, it's just, it's difficult. So like, I think one of the lessons about being an artist that I've learned over these years is just like, you put stuff out, you mean things, sometimes it's inconsequential to what people get from it. And like, if it's just something that's like capital A art, then it's not that big a deal. But if it's like art that is also somewhat of a, an essay in this case, right? Then like, that's kind of disheartening. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if this is your chance uh, with the people who are here today to tell them, what is it actually about? What would you say? Oh, I mean, personally, I would, personally, I don't see any value in 
like dictating what the meaning of it is. Except that you the work because you just feel like it didn't come through, like you, whatever you're yeah, trying to do. Yeah, was- personally, what I would hope is that it would make people kind of like think about things. And I didn't get, I didn't get that vibe. Like I got, sometimes I got a lot of vibes where it's like, you know, well, my hashtag or my um, hex code is blase, blase, blah, right? And I'm this, that, and the third. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I wasn't really, I wasn't really trying. I mean, I in a way I'm trying to destroy, I, I wanted to smash. Okay, here it is. I wanted to get people to think about how ridiculous it is anyway. You know what I mean? Like, and how unrelated the color of that character was to what that character could be, particularly in that, you know what I mean? Like, and, and the yeah. construct, the construct yeah. of race, how it's working, how it's creeped its way into the editorial process. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not, I wasn't trying to give people more space to sort of project the concept of race onto themselves. You know well, I, mean? I thought I, the really interesting <laughs> piece to me was how you talked you talked about all these different, you know, what is again, what is black? The color, the hex code that you would be right now on the video screen is nothing like mm. black. It's not black, mm. right? It's mm. a, a nice brown color. It's not yeah. doesn't doesn't relate to zero 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 hex yeah, code. Yeah, yeah. But then in other light, you would be other same as me, you know, like they'd have different colors depending on what light you're in. As an artist, you're always thinking about what is the color I'm actually seeing and not some kind of dictated. And that, to me, related to the contingency of race, like race only means something in in certain contexts, you know, it means Mm. different things in different contexts. And I thought that the coda about She-Hulk, the reason I thought it was a She-Hulk, you know, from when you're working on that, um, you have a thing where there's several different panels showing She-Hulk drawings with different greens. She's green, Mm. and she's different greens in different panels. And you point out that nobody complains about this. <laughs> she mm. changes color depending on who's mm. uh, coloring and depending on the light conditions and so on. Mm. And because she's green, no one cares and no one comments mm. on it, which I thought for me, that was, that was the meaning of it was really uh, to question this whole, the whole idea of how color can be used as a, you know, to pin you down to some kind of meaning that you don't mm. really you don't well, get behind yeah, like, or potentially don't get behind. Well, that, yeah, but like, yeah. So like when I also putting two things next to each other to maybe create some confusion. So like when you say black, like you don't really like it, it could be, it's a politic. Like it's not, you know, like yeah. I don't, I never, you know what I mean? Like, and um, the value of the, the value of, you know, that's part of the reason why I don't want to sit here and like try to explain it. And like, maybe I failed at, the comic doing what I intended to do with the comic, because I really like, if I could, I guess if I could just like pin down sort of what I'm trying to provoke in a phrase, like in a poem, I'd be Saul Williams. Right. But I'm not, I'm making the cartoon, I'm making the comic so that it can do that work, which is really just to get people to think about like, Oh, well, uh, the skin color of this character has some sort of other symbolic meaning to these people. And it's related to like the value of it, no pun intended. Um, and like, how does that relate to the history of how these figures have been depicted? Right. Yeah. So that's all. Yeah. I mean, but whatever, like, so this next thing that I'm working on, I'm, I have an opportunity to kind of like, explore um explore like how 
how even that work and works like that fit into like sort of the space that I've been in. So like, you know, what is it, what does it mean to try to produce this type of work? What does it mean to feel some type of way when you can't do it? And it's like, how does that relate really to struggles or whatnot? Like a lot of it is funny because I had started working on it and then, uh, what's it, old Femi? Uh, hold on for a second. So I was, um, I'm just going to really just uh, look it up right now. Are you actually Googling I, right in the middle of your interview? Yeah, because I want to get, <laughs> I want to get this guy's name right. Yeah, Olufemi Otaiwo did this. He wrote this article in uh, The Philosopher, Elite Capture and Epistemic Deference. And I read it right as I was working on this script. And I was like, okay this is exactly sort of like, all right, this is going to be in response or like in, you know, dealing with some of these ideas. And I'll give you guys a link on here. It's a good article. Great. And if you're coming here later to this, then we will share that link also in our show notes. Oh, there it is. Yeah. And I mean, um, so yeah, just some, Complex ideas. I don't want. I don't even want to talk about. It. It's like you can watch, you can read that article, or whatever. I'm not. Okay, saying we're we'll, saying we'll read the, the article. Thing. But this is. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah. The, but I mean, this you, you all. It, it. The. This sort of discomfort with pinning down meaning and with dictating meaning and and allowing lots of room for interpretation, but also having lots of ideas that you want people to pick up on. That seems like something that's really a theme through your work. I mean, I. Look, I hope so. It's a theme in my life is hopefully yes. coming out in my work, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, I think it relates to this thing I was referring to of not being able to figure out, you know, what your email was or whatever. It's sort mm. of like you want people to figure <laughs> you out, man. <laughs> I, you know, like, I kind of want to get, I kind of, I don't know if I want people to figure me out. I, I don't know. You know what I have a lot? I place a lot of value in just... I don't know. I feel like I've, I, in my life, I've gotten a lot of value from just coming into contact with things that made me think deeply and take the time to think about things and like maybe put me on and think laterally about other things. And like, that's what I want to do. Like, I, I feel maybe when I was right out of school or like when I was young and like making art. I was like, okay, well, this is a way for people to know me. Like, you know, OG, young, young Ronald Wimberly was like, yeah, you know, like if I keep making this stuff, like it's a way to connect with people and they'll get to know me. And I feel like, I don't know if that's like uh, an object. Well, I mean, I think this uh, is something, again, this is something that I associate with all of my many times hanging out with you that like things will like this article will come up in a conversation because you've found, you've found this through a path of inquiry. You've gone someplace and you kind of want people to follow you. I remember talking to you one time about teaching and whether you would want to teach and you expressed sort of, what's the word I would look for here? Like flabbergastedness or something about the lack of curiosity among students that you, you saw at school um, when you were there that, you know, a, a teacher would sort of offhandedly toss off a name to you of, you should go check out so-and-so the way teachers do. Right. And you'd be like, all right. And you write it down and you'd go look it up 
and find out who that person is. And then you'd read the bibliography and you'd find out who their influences are. And then you'd go from there and you continue to look for stuff. And um, you have a very curious mind and you're very interested in what people are saying and you want to be able to put these ideas together. And then you embed them. And I think there's moments, it seems to me that there are moments when it clicks and people see what you're trying to put together. And, and that's when you feel great about what you're doing with your work and everybody else is like, wow, you know, Ron just blew my mind. And there's other times when you think they're not following, like they're not getting the thing I'm trying to, to the path I'm trying to lay down for them, the, the breadcrumbs that I want to have people follow. Maybe, but I mean, maybe it's like, uh, I don't know, two things are happening at least. One of them is, okay, well, how do I interact with society or my community with my work in a meaningful way? One. Two, how do I have a healthy relationship with how my work is received? <laughs> you know? And the, uh, and, the production, and the production of my work. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't, I don't know. I haven't really worked this out very far down the line, but it seems from the bit that I've thought about it, that it's unhealthy to fixate on how work is received. It, it seems like it's not a look, you know what I mean? Like you don't wanna, it's not something to focus too much on. But at the same time, I do see, I don't know, like I, you know, I'll go to a movie and I'll see like, you know, or whatever, you see like a, a Star Wars or like a Marvel movie or something. And you're just like, wow, this part of it is because it is just like the voice of the dominant culture just manifesting. Like it, it the dominant culture is producing this thing that happens to kind of like vibrate with it. You know what I mean? Like it is, it is, it's giving you the aesthetics of like what the dominant culture is. And part of that you see it and you're like, wow, this is very efficient at connecting with people. But also it's like these people live in the world that's producing this. It's not like, it's not, transgressive or, you know, doing anything like that. It's just like really the flower. It is the flower of our society, right? <laughs> and then the people are coming and looking at it and they're like, wow, look at it. It's amazing. I'm impacted by this. It's like, yeah, you're, you're impacted by this, but like also you and the world that you live in has created this. Like this is the, this is what it is. And so, I mean, as an artist, maybe like this is a back, like backwards. I'm not always kind of like in my mind thinking what I've just said. Sometimes I'm just looking at it and I'm like, wow, it's whoever, the people who put this together, they're really good at sort of like kind of pied pipering these people. But it's like, I don't think it's necessarily that. I think it's moving in both directions, you know? So like, I think it's good to remember that. And also if I'm creating something where I'm like, okay, I'm trying to embed some things into, uh, I'm trying to embed some things that are maybe either like sort of like problematizing that that world or that those aesthetics or even you know um fighting against it or i i i see as like a response like a counter to it then to kind of have this to put it out there and you know uh i think i just need to be more patient with just like well let it you know just put it out just like put it out and see how people you know like and it's great. Sometimes people come up to you and they're like, oh, I love this. And you did this, that, and the third. And it's like, I just need to have more self-control or like, or be more, I think, have space 
to accept that this is impacting or like mean something to people without sort of like kind of feeling some type of way about how what it exactly means to them <laughs> you know what i mean just like kind of okay yeah all right that's what you got from that then great like okay I'm, I'm out here and like i can support myself a little bit longer you know what i mean like great you know what i mean like let me not get to you know but that's then a also bar, maybe- though. that is really that's really hard it's really hard to not care you know what mm-hmm. people are thinking about you you have a whole set of you've lived with this work for years you know, you have a whole set of ideas that went into it and you had the experience of creating it and then to let that go and let it be whatever it is in the world. I mean, it's asking yeah. a lot. Yeah. I mean, but life is about living. It's not go. that you're wrong. You're correct. <laughs> but right. it is yeah. hard. Let's uh, let's go back and talk a little bit about your path into comics and yeah. now into working in film and animation, because I think that's going to be interesting to a lot of people here. Like, how did that happen? So you went to Pratt Institute, right? Mm-hmm. Um, were right you doing comics block. when you were there? Um, towards the end, if this is about like my, you know, comics, a buddy of mine, John David, put me on the comics. Like I, I, I know about comics. You know, like you're an American of my age. You grew up like, you know, back in the day, we had newsstands. There was a thing called a newsstand. Like comics <laughs> would be there. And uh, wow, in man, you're stand. older than I thought. Yeah, right. <laughs> like a seven <laughs> eleven. Right. You know. those are fossils around, you know, like yeah. I was I watching went to Newsstand uh, too. What movie oh, I was watching the um the documentary on Fran Libowitz and she had like the um they had footage of New York back in the day. And like I remember when my great grandma, she used to take us up to like the church group would take us from DC up to New York for like little functions or whatever like shows and whatnot and i remember the first time we came in on the bus you know what i mean it's probably like eating fried chicken out of aluminum foil on the bus you know like <laughs> you know little snacks or whatever and looking out the window and seeing the yellow cabs and just seeing the air it's like as if like a swarm of seagulls except it was like newspapers you know what i mean like just the streets were covered, you know what I mean? Like newspaper flying everywhere, like trash, whatever. This was 80s New York. So anyway, my uncle used to read comics. I didn't know anything about comics, but I had seen comics around, you know, like he collected comics. I had Spider-Man pajamas. I had an Incredible Hulk t-shirt. You know what I mean? Like it was around, there was a Hulk TV show. You know what I mean? Like there was stuff, but I hadn't really, the material I hadn't really come in contact with, you know, only just sort of like the, licensed products from IP that started in comic. So then uh, my homie put me onto it. I picked it up. I had been into anime though before. And so like anime was something I was really into. And it was before people even called it anime. Like we didn't, you know, it was like Japanese cartoons, Japanimation, like all the awful things we called this stuff back in the day, you know? But like, yeah, I was into that. And so then he took me to the comic book store and I was like, oh, wow, cool. All right, here's like some you know, a lot of salacious imagery, you know what I mean? Like, and that was like, Ooh, let me, let me pick this up. You know, and I can read this, like I can read this comic, you know, like, um, but, and yeah, picking up like Appleseed and picking up very early, like those colored Akira comics, you know, Mm. um, what else? And yeah, I would get like the, the coolest things would be like these Appleseed books that just had like lots of back material that was just, talking about the world you know i was always into the weird things like 
unconventional ways of telling story, like story being told outside of comics too. Like I always like the collector cards from Marvel more than like the comics, <laughs> you know, cause it was like but a so, world, it was, it's an exploded world, you know? Yeah. So how did you go from this kind of sideways entry into being a comics reader to deciding, yeah, I'm going to try to do this. Hmm. Oh, so right before I got to college, I was reading Jordan Crane's Non, and like that How'd was that like, happened. I was just going to the comic book store. I was into things that looked cool and were fun and funky. I wasn't really. What comic book store did you go to that you would get Non? It was like out. I think it was. I got a big planet or something. Mrs. Carling or something. It was out. It was probably like out in Bethesda, Maryland or something, or like was it was out in the planet, suburbs right? of Maryland somewhere. I don't remember. I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah. But like JD's mom would drive us out. Like we take our little bit of money and like go all the way out, you know, and go to this comic book store. And like back then you still had like, I feel like there were people, one of them still had people playing like with little pewter figurines doing something. You know, like, this is, yeah. The gaming stuff. Yeah. 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 It was a wild place. But like, yeah, I would get my weird comics and like, and sometimes just based on the cover, I remember one just had like a, um, like a girl, like, with the cover, with a reading non on the cover of non, and there was like a TV in the back. I still have this comic to this day. So that seed was planted, got to Pratt, art direction. Didn't do art direction, switched over to illustration. Towards the end, maybe like junior year or maybe even senior year, I joined the Static Fish with um, a bunch of the guys there, Julian, um, Julian Lytle, Ted Lange third, Dan Bandit, he's called Dan Bandit now, um, did the backgrounds for uh, Adventure Time, yeah, a bunch of a bunch of people. Miss, who's also a cartoonist, and that's kind of how I got into comics as a culture. And one of the first comics I did was kind of like you know influenced by um, Dave Cho's Slow Jams, and the second one I did was Gratton Inn, and that was influenced by um, Arzak uh, and Ninjas, and the and like I guess the second or third ninja explosion the 80s ninja explosion in the, in which, the comics world yeah so the gratuitous gratinin is gratuitous ninja right that's what it's short yeah, for yeah. gratuitous ninja so are you were you aware that your ninjas were gratuitous and it was like extra ninjas we didn't need is that what that means <laughs> yeah the original the original idea was like you know a ninja is just a figure that there's so much embedded in just like the figure of a ninja, right? Like, mm -hmm. and oh my God. So like, yeah, I just wanted, I wanted something to move. I wanted something to explode that I could draw that I didn't have to. Also ninjas are silent. You know what I mean? Arzak was silent. So like my second comic, no words. I didn't want to have any words in it. I just wanted it to be movement and violence. You know, so like gratuitous ninja, meaning like, I don't really need ninjas, right? Like, you know, I just, I, I put them in there. like. Symbolically, I just like what they meant. I just like ninjas. Like everything <laughs> that they, everything, everything. And the more I got into them, the more I, I was into them. Right. Like at first, it's just like literally that sort of ninja that kind of aesthetically comes from someone who's working on a stage. Right. Like they're wearing all black. And then as I got deeper and deeper into it, like I'm like, wow. Okay. So all right, some of these guys, farmers. Like I'm starting to learn the history. You know, like, and then I just. They just and it just got more and more into like it's still a, it's still a comic that the last comic I drew was a Gratton in comic. You know what I mean? Like I, you know. 
Well, I think it, it's sort later, of, a, so. you know, getting to what we're talking, the first half of this interview, we're talking about this, uh, you know, various kinds of ways that you, meanings you're struggling with to either express or not and hope people get them and yeah. don't. I feel like there's this other strand of your work that, and, and they may be split at the moment where you're, you, you're able to do in lab, which is a tabloid magazine that you're yeah. editor of, and you have your own articles in there. And you're also convening a whole community of people with lots of thoughts about culture mm. in the world. You're able to put all that stuff there and then you can make Grattan in. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's like you can kind of separate those two things in some way. Yeah. I mean, that's what I, that's what I would like to do. And as lab continues on, you know, like the first issue of lab was lab zero, right? It's kind of like lab is numbered sort of like uh, metaphorically, right? <laughs> it's, it's numbered. It's not, it's numbered in a way that has nothing to do with which one came out and what, you know, consecutively or whatever. Yeah, I know. It's got nothing to do. I own them. <laughs> right, right. So number zero is just kind of like, it's a, it's a statement of purpose. Um, It's a lot of the, you know, you know, it's like a lot of, it's essentially me putting all my cards out on the table. You know what I mean? You can get, see all of like my sort of pinko uh, tendencies. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm just, I'm kind of stating my subjective position. Um, and also like kind of, it's a key to, all right, well, why, you know, like, why are these, you know, like if you look at lab number zero, you get an idea of like where lab came from. It's yeah. in a way though, it's almost like not an issue. It's not an issue looking, you know, like it's not what I want lab to be, you know, it's, it's, um, it's more kind of like what's underneath lab. So it's, a it's lot like the of back essays. matter of the, of the yeah. comics <laughs> that were reading in the eighties or something. Like it's all the yeah. stuff you have to know in order to be able to read the future episodes. Yeah. Yeah. If you're curious about it. Right. Yeah. Um, and as we move on, I'm just kind of like, lab, right, that's wanna... a prerequisite. Like you're not going to be reading lab if you're not curious about it. It's, right. it's well, challenging. So. Like the graphic design and the, the density of the, thinking and all the others, the size of it, just holding it. It's huge. Mm. It's a challenging thing to grapple with. You gotta be committed. I mean which I imagine is part yeah. of the point. Yeah, that is definitely part of the point. I mean I just wanted to make also it goes back to like none, right? Like I wanted to, you know, that's kind of like the blueprint for me. Like that's how I got into comics. Like when I was in college, it was like ad busters, you know, non slow jams. Mm -hmm. um thb you know what i mean your work these things that were kind of dorkin tell, uh, tell the evans dorkin story <laughs> tell the story dorkin <laughs> kind of like dorkin gave me the first comic of yours that i ever got and i still have it which is yeah, very cool like but RV. okay so yeah. for everybody who does it is not familiar with him evan dorkin is a uh, a long time indie cartoonist self-publishing and he had a comic called milk and cheese and it's very mm -hmm. Uh, 90s and aughts kind of snarky, sarcastic humor. Milk and cheese are these bad boy. Their their dairy products gone bad. So here uh, comes young Ron with his portfolio to is that his log line? Yeah, dairy, dairy products gone, gone bad. bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, which is good, right? It's yeah. very funny stuff. And so you're showing your portfolio around at a comics convention or just meeting people or yeah. something? In the Puck Building, I think it was. Mm. Or maybe it was like a Big Apple Comic Con. Like it was during the years where New York Comic Con didn't exist. Like I think it's at one point the Teamsters or something had put the kibosh on the big New York Comic Cons, right? And there were small ones. Anyway, yeah, I saw Dorkin at one and, you know, I was talking. I mean, I hardly even knew, you know, I had seen his covers more than I had seen it, the inside of his comics. 
But like a buddy of mine, Michael Barry, who we went together at Pratt too, um, he would take me to these comic cons because like I had never gone to comic book conventions. Like it was it was new to me. And he brought me around to meet all these different people. And like, and at one point, yeah, I met Evan Dorkin and like we were talking. And I'm sure I was just like another kid who was like trying to do comics. And he was like, all right, suit yourself. And so he has me this card that it was like a get out of comics free card. <laughs> and I put it in my wallet and I kind of just like forgot about it. And then I don't know, like 10 years later, the punchline hit me like, like a ton of bricks. <laughs> you know, like, um, and yeah, just the, the way it's this, this relationship that could be very beautiful and fulfilling, but also just like awful, like, you know, I I figured out the meaning. Right, it's to designed that card. like a monopoly card. Like the actual card is yeah. designed like a mon- monopoly exactly. card. Get out of jail free. It, yeah. Right, and, right, right, right. Yeah, and like imagine you're at a comics convention, you're looking at uh, young people's portfolios and stuff, and you're handing these cards. <laughs> this is this <laughs> yeah. is Evan's sense of humor. Like he's a very funny guy, but he obviously liked you because he gave you my comic, gave you comics to yeah. look at because mm-hmm. he thought, mm-hmm. you know, he wanted to encourage you at the same time, which is also very Evan. Yeah, which I think is yeah, it, it's. I mean, which is also one of the beauties of comics, right? Like imagine going to, I don't know, like a trade convention, like a Hollywood trade convention, and you bump into like, I don't know, Dorkin would be like the, like a Tarantino or something. You know what I mean? Like someone who's doing like kind of these, you know, like an underground or something. Like yeah, yeah. he's somebody making independent stuff. Right, right, right. I'm going to say Spike Lee because I know Spike Lee, right? <laughs> Spike Lee actually would... I think he would, he might do something like that, but he'd probably keep it moving, you know, because like how many people want to talk to him? You know what I mean? Like how many people want to, you know, also to put it in a sort of economic sense, the time of a cartoonist is way cheaper than the time of a filmmaker. (laughs) You know what I mean? So true. So true. But I've often said stuff like if you, like you're saying, you're going to like a film festival or something like that with some exceptions, you're, you're not going to write, say, a Facebook group you're in or something like that right. and say, hey, dudes, where I'm coming to, you know, the film festival in Riga. Mm. Does anybody know anybody where I can crash? Like, can I sleep on mm. your couch? Mm. And I mean, it's not that it doesn't happen, like, but in yeah, comics, sure, I got a spot. This, exactly. <laughs> like, I know somebody. There's there's a kind of um, – and maybe it's less so now. I don't know. But it, it's just mm. a very collegial and, and helpful community with, you know, the potential downside that, 10 years later, you get the punchline. <laughs> mm, right, right. Yeah, comics is, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of different things. I think it's got really high highs and really low lows. This episode of The Autonomous Creative is brought to you by Authentic Visibility. I work with a lot of committed mid-career creatives who struggle to get their work seen. It feels crappy to put so much love and effort into making something, but when you introduce it in the real world, there's a whole lot of nothing as far as reaction. It's truly awful. And they're not looking for attention because they're egomaniacs. Art and creative work in general exists to communicate some set of ideas or thoughts or emotions from you, from inside your head to inside someone else's head in as intact a form as possible. When you release your project and it goes up like a brilliant bunch of balloons disappearing into the clear blue sky with no one around to see or care, never mind to pick their own balloon to take home and treasure, It's demoralizing. But the truth is most creatives in their natural state are 
frankly pretty terrible at telling anyone why they should care about the work. Why should someone show up to get a pretty balloon? It's not their fault though. It's how we teach people to create their best work, by digging deep inside ourselves to come up with wonderful, original new ideas. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. The problem is that's where the process typically ends, creating, not communicating. Virtually all the training and practice of making creative work focuses on the first half of the core mission of communication, getting those ideas out of your head and into some actual form that people can see, but that's missing half the picture. As a creative, it's your job to build the whole complete connection, to build a bridge for the audience that they can use to easily cross over and understand the value of your work to them. And this kind of clarity and audience-focused language doesn't come easy to creatives. And that's why I put together a free class specifically for creatives, ridiculously named, How to Get People Wildly Obsessed with Your Work. And in it, I teach the key technique to flip your perspective 180 degrees and start to use your audience's point of view to inform how you share your work so that they'll get it. I also introduce our awesome program, Authentic Visibility, the audience growth program designed to turn highly skeptical and frankly, marketing sensitive creatives into powerful advocates for their vision and their work, setting the stage for huge career growth and a major role in the larger cultural conversation. So if you want your work to make its mark in the world, check out the free wildly obsessed class and supercharge your ability to connect with new fans in just 90 minutes. Go to jessicaable.com wildly and join the free class now. That's J-E-S-S-I-C-A-A-B-E-L dot com slash wildly. Now let's get back to the interview. So tell me, in terms of high highs and low lows, tell me a little bit about Prince of Cats, your book, which is, um, oh. I don't know how you want to describe it, but it is an adaptation of... Um, I, say, I say it's the B-side. It's the B-side of Shakespeare's right. Romeo and Juliet. The B-side of Shakespeare. Uh, that's good. I like yeah, that. Yeah. 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 So um, it's a yeah. it's an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Kind of, not really. Like it's it's like it has some Romeo and Juliet. It's a, it's in a take. It. Let's say it's a take yeah. on it. It's it yeah. tells it, the more or less the arc of it. Right, right. The arc of Romeo and Juliet is some is happening kind of as a backdrop, and like it is a motif. It's a motif. Um, the Romeo and Juliet is a motif, and also sort of like the um the era. Like well. You know, so it's set in the eighties in New York, right? It's set in the eighties in New York, like it, it kind of a mashup of like sort of the decade, uh, where you're getting a little bit of that late seventies, like Warriors vibe, you know, like. But it's one of the things. The one of the things I, yeah, one of the things I sold it as is like, yeah, it's like five years after the Warriors, right? Which is like, <laughs> um, yeah, eighty blocks from Tiffany's is like, you know, I would have said. You know, like it it carries that sort of vibe forward a little bit. Um, yeah, and it I wanted to get away from the sort of romantic narrative and kind of like the central romantic narrative of Romeo and Juliet and like explore Tibble, um, Rosalind, who I don't even we don't really even see in the play. I think Rosalind might be like she's probably at the party. Um, Juliet a little bit. And yeah, Samson and Gregory. But so the story yeah. of it that I want to, I mean, the, um, the book is great and, and beautiful and there's, it's really rich. There's tons, tons to get into in it, but I want to talk about the, 
the path of the actual book. Like, <laughs> so you were, did it come out of working on sentences? Um, so sentences is it where you were adapting somebody else's memoir, right? Sentences was, well, yeah, it was um, MF Grimm, Underground MC, uh, Wild Story, part of Moss Island Zars, along with Doom, you know, you may have heard of, legendary Underground MC, MF Grimm, Percy Carey, wrote his story, and then I, I illustrated it, I illustrated it for, um, for Vertigo, and we put out sentences, so like, I was already at Vertigo, though, so like, the background... That was the first and so graphic just novel. for everybody for background vertigo was the quote unquote indie um author owned imprint of dc comics so it's part of you know the all comics. of those things you said yeah. should be in scare quotes right yes exactly <laughs> i did i said quote unquote did i not <laughs> yeah you did i'm just saying yeah like yeah um yeah so but it was great because um it was great because like yeah you got some weird you got some weird things that that came out of it you know so um and i had done some like fill-ins and some covers and uh kind of culminating in this graphic novel and i was always kind of um pitching things casey sejas the editor on it you know i would pitch him different things and i had made like a little i guess you would call it an ash can except this comic never got into prince of cats i had made like a 20 something page comic that was just like a tybalt like character getting into a fight and i sold that at comic cons and stuff like and so i made a little something and pitched it but um it didn't it didn't really go anywhere and then i i kind of i don't want to use the language i fucked off to do some other things like and at this time it was crazy because the irony is at this time i um i was in italy as an extra on a spike lee movie which is like a weird weird part of the story <laughs> yeah and so uh it, it came um casey reached out to me while i was while i was there and he's like yeah no we want to do it originally only have reached out and like only was like oh yeah we could do it as like a series but i'm like man how much money you know like I'm not going to be able to survive to make this. Even then I was, you know, a little bit. Needed to uh, eat? Did you need yeah, to, I eat? to eat? Did you yeah, need to we pay were rent? In New York. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, but I felt like the cast at only, I was like, I really liked them. And I was a coward at the time. So I got like, I was like, all right, I don't know what to do. That's how I got uh, my first agent, Bob Mikoy. Because like, I was a coward and I didn't really want to, go to the cats at Oni and be like, bruh, I need more money. So I'm going with Vertigo because <laughs> Vertigo reached out. And so like I did, this must've been 2000. When was, this must've been 2000, the end of 2007. Right around when we met. Yeah. Yeah. But I met Bob through uh, Sankey Lee, I believe. Cause Sankey, mm -hmm. Bob was repping Sankey Lee, who's Spike's younger brother. And that's how I ended up out in Italy. That's the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I uh, talking about this yeah. book here. Not even that. Like, no, I know it's. There's a smaller version that came out. There was this format. Karen Berger, you know, was editor. You know, Vertigo very grace graciously um, put took a chance on me putting out the book. The book was great. I gotta say, I wasn't very excited with how well it was promoted. Um, it it like sold out like within like a year. I don't. 
I can't, it sold out so fast. I don't even, it's hard to remember it properly because it was ridiculous. And we didn't get another, we didn't do another printing of it. Uh, so and they sat on the rights for a really long time, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, I sat on, I think they just like, it was in there and like, I don't think they were paying much attention to it. So when I, uh, when I reached out to them and also, you know, credit to Bob kind of like staying on them, they just released them back to me. And then, I don't know, I was kind of doing some comics, doing comics here and there. Most of my career, I feel like it, I had supplemented it with uh, other types of work, um, design, design work, illustration-centered design work. You know, the way Prince of Cats got made is also a crazy story because I was working on Black Dynamite when I was wrapping that book up. It was just, it was crazy. Wait, when was, when you when you brought it to Image, you mean? Or when you first did it? When I first did it. Okay. I completed that book on the road. Yeah. Anyway, so um, a year passes, another year passes. I think like four years passed. I had been kind of knocking on the door at Image and like through the help of like, a bunch of friends. Kelly Sue DeConnick was like the the last person I think to try to like get me published by Image, and so I announced I announced two books that I have not done, and then like <laughs> um, at one point Eric was like, "Oh, we should put out Prince of Cats again." This must have been 2016, I think. Put it out, did great. I think we're on our third or fourth printing now. I don't remember. Somewhere between the, I think the second and third printing, um, the Zucker Productions, you know, Janet and Katie particularly reached out to me about shopping it around. Um, they shopped it around like in a year, within a year, like Legendary optioned it. And that was maybe like two years ago, maybe two, maybe three years now, I don't know. And then about last year, right before COVID, I turned in the uh, an adaptation that I did with Spike, and then so Kobe Spike Lee is involved in this. He's going to be he's co-writing with you and directing. Well, we or did, yeah, we did a draft. I mean, look, part of it's not my story to tell, so I'm not going to tell it. But like, we're still in development, and um, Spike and I co-wrote a draft, and that's the last I'll say of it. <laughs> Whoa! Like, open loops. You, that's the last. Yeah, that's the last I'll say of it. It's like you know, yeah, you're stuff not gonna get the scoop here. Maybe. Yeah, stuff is happening. Yeah, yeah, stuff is yeah. definitely happening. So yeah, you need um, to update your get them to update your IMDb, man. It's not even in there. I mean, I'm doing the work. I'll get around to it. You know when I'll update my IMDb when I need a job. <laughs> as long as like Fair as long enough. as I'm. As long as I'm working, I really don't care what the general public sees of my life to keep it on you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, I, I'm sure that's true. And like that gets back to the early thing I was talking about. It was just not, you know, there's a lot of opacity in your various public presences that mm -hmm. make it um, sometimes hard to pin down, you know, to figure out like where to get in touch with you or whatever, obviously mm -hmm. intentionally. But I think it's interesting that you have like four tumblers. I know they're old, you know, you haven't been updating yeah. them in a while, but it's not like you're private in that sense, yeah. you know? No, I mean, but it's like, it's having a, like a radio station or something. You know what I mean? That's what it was. It was like really fun. I miss Tumblr, man. Like Tumblr was the best. What are you going to do? Yeah. But yeah, I had a bunch because it's like, it was fun. I go on that. Tumblr reminded me a little bit of the sort of blogs that were out there 
kind of before the internet had been enclosed as much as it had been. Um, so it was like, you know, you could, you could go on there and see someone's weird vaporwave blog, like posting all of these old animes, you know what I mean? One person's, you know, like, this is why I went, this is why I kind of got this band. It's like, someone's doing their little like amateur porn, like someone's doing like, you know, furries or whatever, you know what I mean? Like everything was on there and it was, or someone's like going really deep on like these images. It was, it was doing like what a lot of, you know, like a flicker or some other things were trying to do, but they, it was like a little bit too, you know, it wasn't flowing as well. And it was just like, man, it was great. So like, that's why I did. Yeah. And no one knew, I don't know how many people knew the thing about, yeah. So the most hits I ever got on my tumblers or like my highest thing is just when I posted a bunch of pictures from an indigenous Olympics. They're not there for me or my drawings or nothing. Mm -hmm. This post is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have shared this post. It has nothing to do with my art or nothing. You know what I mean? Like, so that's what I liked about Tumblr. It, it, in a way, yeah, it's not necessarily obfuscating like me or who I am, but in a weird sort of way, people can get an idea of like me in a, in a more intimate way than like if it's like a press release or like a list of the things that I've Oh, gone. for sure. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it's, it's not curated in the way your own sort of presented social media is where you're creating images and writing captions and doing, you know, that's a curated view of some sense. It's a different yeah. kind of, like it's you curating other things. Mm -hmm. And then we get by osmosis, a sense of what your interests are and, yeah. you know, where your paths of research are taking you and all those kinds yeah. of things. So I think, yeah, I mean, there's a, a I, I never got the hang of it, I gotta say. But like I look at your tumblers and I think huh? <laughs> you didn't have yeah, enough free have, time. No, I don't have enough free time, yeah. it's true. But um but look at your tumblers and I'm I can sort of you can see a thought process. And that's true with the best ones, I think, that you can see, hmm. you know, where people are going with stuff. Um Yeah, it's a story. Yeah. Like one of them, the Gratin in one, I love it because it's like, okay, well, even the Prince of Cats one, it's like, okay, well. Here's what Prince of Cats is. Like, actually, here's another, here's another way of reading Prince of Cats. Like, just um, you know, like a mood board that you could create. Sometimes those things are a better, it's like a tasting menu. You know what I We're mean? Back it's to like, the oh, end okay. notes in the comics, right? It's like all yeah, the things exactly. you, you want people to know, the context. Exactly. You want context. You want people to know yeah. all the all the parts that go into it. It's a feeling, you know, like it's a vibe, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yes. But also, yeah, you know, but yeah, it's a feeling and a vibe, but it also exists in a context and in a world of, like, I was reading the latest lab and you have this thing about the, the Chitlin circuit and sort of how the, mm. there's a black comics mm. equivalent of that in some sense. Mm. And then you look at the way, and you also talked about the influences of Chinese and Japanese pop culture mm. on you growing up mm. in a different article. And all of these things, when I read them, I go, oh, all of a sudden I get a whole new layer on looking at Fritz Katz, looking at Bratton. You know, there's all these different things that I now understand in them because I'm under, I'm seeing all that context. Mm. Yeah. I um, mean, in that way, yeah, lab is for lab is for someone, I think, like you, I guess in comics, it's crazy. I think comics must be of all of sort of pop culture mediums, the medium with the most people participating in making it while also like consuming it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Probably that's what makes comics the way it is. And like, Lab is definitely 
you know, some of lab is for people who are just like, oh, I just want to read these comics in here, or like read these articles. But a lot of lab is also just like, I don't, I'm not even going to slow down and wait for people who aren't making comics or trying to make comics or reading these books. Um, because my approach, fuck around, my approach to culture even, like say it could go back to code switching. It's like, you know, when I was a kid going from like uh, one space to another, like nobody slowed down and like kind of let me know what the references were. Really, it's just like I had to be curious and figure the things out, like try to remember this name, like try to, you know, and then like, and to me, I think <clears throat> because like how I've kind of found value and in information in that way, like I'm sort of uh lab is sort of a um recapitulation might be the word, like a re, you know, like it's a reconstructing. It's like what retracing. That yeah. In one, at least in one one thread, at least like for example, the one about um Japanese and Chinese culture, the pop culture influences. Mm -hmm you go and, and you try to pull all of these different things that were showing up in your life mm. and how you encountered them and how they influenced mm. your work, but also how you saw it influencing other things around and how they influenced each other. And you're retracing not everything that influenced you, but one mm. thread of influence through mm. that. Well, kind of like when we were talking before about the Marvel stuff, like, okay, well, what creates that Marvel movie, you know, like, why does it look like a Raytheon commercial? Well, it's like, because it's, you know, it's in a world where, you know, that, where that exists as well, right? Like those people who live in this world and this economy produce that because it's like, okay, yeah, they lit, you know, they're literally just re reproducing sort of the world that they live in. And so what I wanted to do with that particular article is kind of like dig into like, well, why am I as a, you know, like, what does it mean historically to be influenced by these, these other cultures or like this soft power? And like, what does it mean to have these objects come into your space from someplace else where you may or may not have the context even, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and what does it mean for you to try to like, maybe strategically escape your identity or like how these, these like materials influence your identity or sometimes like false friends, you know what I mean, within your identity and your culture? Like, what does that mean? You know, like, so that's what I wanted to explore that. And I kind of just wanted to make it a little bit more complex than just like, I wanted to, I wanted to make, I wanted to, yeah, trace the material, the history of, of things. And maybe you can get a notion of like, wow, okay, this is why, this is why Ronald thinks this is his sort of perspective on why he ends up producing the things that he has the way he has. And like, that is information. That information, like the, the process of sort of, um, what's the word they use like when they, for forensics, right? That forensic process is something that I want people to kind of like, you know, like that's something that you can do too, right? Like that's me, you know what I mean? Like I think is worthwhile. I mean, imagine applying those forensics to like the Marvel movie, you know, like what yeah, might you come up with? For sure. Well, I mean, it's the stuff of PhD theses. Yeah. But like, it could be plainly, you know, you can, you can peep game it as oh, well. Oh yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Like, no, like, I mean, I think yeah. that's like, you're, you live the life, which is like, look, you don't have to do this as a PhD thesis. This right, can be part right. of your everyday engagement with the world. Mm -hmm. That's what but it helps to like have time, right? These conversations. Yeah. It does help to have time. Yeah. Yes. Research. <laughs>
research. Okay, well, that actually leads us to, we do have a couple of questions and there is a question that's related to this. Um, that, let's see, when you create a book like Prince of Cats, how many times do you, or in your uh, understanding, other creators intend for it to be read? Like how many times? Like, I don't mean, I don't think it means oh. literally how many times, but you know, there are certain comics that I've made where yeah. I expect people to read it basically once. They don't need to, you know, when somebody reads Life Sucks, they are welcome to read it as many times as mm. they want, but there's not a ton of subtext in there. There's some, there's a little bit, but it doesn't require multiple readings. Whereas mm. when you're reading something like Out on the Wire, I'm expecting people are going to want to read it, study it, go back to it, mm. use it multiple times. I think that's kind of what this is about. And mm. I think, again, if you look at the kind of things we're talking about where you have so much context embedded into works and but you also just want people to be able to kind of vibe on it like yeah. what is your feeling what is your sort of i mean i'm i don't know if this is what the person was asking exactly but like what do you sort of if you imagine what would the ideal way of engaging with this as somebody who has never read your work before what would that be like i mean the the simple answer is i have no expectations or i never even think about it like I'm a slow reader, so I want to try to like guess what I think from my own sort of approach to materials. I'm a slow reader and a deliberate reader, so I probably, I imagine that if I subconsciously think or have an answer for that, it would be like, I just probably expect people to slowly go over it. But like, I really... I don't, I don't think about it at all. I don't, I really don't, you know, sometimes. And like the way you, the way you, I think comics are great because the way you can interact with the comic is like the thing that's different about a comic from like a movie or a record or like, I guess Spotify kind of makes music like this a little bit, but not really because, you know, music itself is like your experience of it is like, it requires a sequence, you know, like time. Um, I like just pick it up, flip through it, look through it. You're going to see some pictures like you might go forward, you might go back, you might spoil something for yourself. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you read it once, you're like, ah, oh, I don't know. I get that. Then maybe you put it on the coffee table or whatever and like put it in the bathroom. Then you pick it up again. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe from, maybe you buy it and like your interaction with that book is just looking at the spine for the rest of your life. I got a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? Yo, it's crazy. I pick them up off the street and then I put them down. And then like, what's nuts is I'll like be reading some, I'll completely learn some new stuff. And then I don't realize I had the primary source in my library. It's mm. crazy. It happens all the time. Um, so related question. Do you ever feel like your references and influences in your books are too obvious? Like you're laying stuff on really, too thick? I don't really... I don't really think about it or care. I'm doing it out of joy. <laughs> you know, I don't want to, I don't want it to be, yeah. Like if, if, if it's like, I don't want it to be, I don't want it to be corny, but like, I really can't help what's corny. Like if I do something and somebody else think it's corny, it's corny. Sometimes I do, like, I don't want to do, um, if, okay, here's a cheat code. <laughs> I'm mostly... There's mostly some, there's mostly some meaning to it. I'm not doing like, 
homages. I'm not into homages or like, it's either I'm doing it because it's like, I'm literally copying a master or there's some meaning to it. I'm not like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if like, this was like that? It's like, no, I don't, I don't think mixing X with X to create whatever. Me personally, I'm doing, there's a meaning to it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like if you're making a um you're making a sauce or something, it's like, oh, I'm gonna use a little bit of this, I'm gonna use a little bit of this coriander and like I'm gonna use this nutmeg or whatever. It's like, well, you're not just throwing it in because it's like, yo, coriander and nutmeg, nobody's done that before. Boom. You know, like <laughs> you're like, okay, no, these things mean something new together, right? Like they create a new experience. And it could be sensual, but usually for me, it's like it is it has some sort of a narrative meaning like the cover. So for instance, like the cover of Prince of Cats, which is like super obvious. If you're familiar with it, I don't think you need to know about it, but like it is referring to several different things that are like part of the DNA of Prince of Cats. Like in a way, what I want for people to, you know, like once they look at, like if you're, if you're familiar with that, it's a sample. You know what I mean? Like it's a sample. It's like if you- um, Give us the list. What is it referring to? Tadanori Yoko's um, posters for a Yakuza film. Uh, also, it's referencing the first theatrical poster for uh, Sword of Doom. So, you know, one is a Yakuza reference. The other one is a reference to a film about a guy who, like, is looking for or his path to enlightenment or his path to knowing is through violence and mastery of violence. And then there's like the, the bridge as a motif is calling back to the Taranori Yoko too. Um, so that's it. And all of them have their, all of them are holding like their sort of, like their things that are speaking to their, their approach to knowledge yeah. Like I mean, I, that's, I think that answers both those questions. It's both, you can just look at it. It's a cool cover. It looks great. It's attractive. I want to pick up the book. That's what covers are for. And it bears the weight of repeated readings, cultural deep dives, spending time with it, coming back to yeah. it. Both of those things at the same time, which I th think is what you do so well. It's a black, you know, it's, I'm going to say this and maybe this is, awful maybe this is gonna diminish people's oh ability to like really close appreciate your close this. your ears <laughs> but i like thinking about the context one of the things that i i care about or that i think about and one of the things i got from school like this teacher pasalak what i had at pratt was he always was like you're doing this thing but you're part of like a a continuum you're part of a lineage right and people have been doing what you're doing and like, you're gonna do things, people are gonna, it's gonna keep moving. And that's how I think about sometimes this particular type of work, I think about sampling. Like I think about the blues, I think about jazz. So it's like, Doom has this one song, is it, is it Fake Fried Friends or something? Something like that. And he's got like, he's got like, he's got two samples. One of them is Friends, How Many of Us Have Them By Up? Jesus Christ. I'm getting old because my memory, like, this is an obvious, this is an obvious trap. And the other one is 
I think it's Lovers and, and Strangers. Anyway, don't hold me accountable because I can't remember. And one of the guys just died last year One of the from the first record. But it's like, if you know those records, one, there's like a, there's a vibe that you get from like having experienced those records in another space. And it adds like a spatial quality to the music and also like a meta context. And it goes down to the language, you know what I mean? So two as well. And I think that's part of a tradition that I find myself in just accidentally, but also deliberately. Like in, in the end, it's like, I want to go back and I want to do, I want to do that type of stuff. I always think about Sonny Rollins and like Mac the Knife. I think about kind of taking one thing, flipping it, sampling it. And like, what does it, what does it mean? You know, like for me, cause how I experience it is like, wow. Okay. 20, well, not even 20, like 1998, 99 or whatever. Like whenever I first listened to that Sonny Rollins record. And then like many, many years later, I'm like, oh, the, you know, like it's the three penny opera and like, oh, well it's connected to, you know, this type of theater. Oh, and these songs are, you know, it's like, holy shit. <laughs> it changes, you know, like it, your mind explodes. And it yes. gives just a lot of meaning and context to it. And also it's just a bop. You can throw it on and it's nice, but it's also about a guy who's like a, you know, <laughs> a murderer, you know, <laughs> you know, and a, a play that has a relationship to the greatest tragedies of the 20th century, <laughs> you know, like it's just, yeah. you know, anyway. So context so that's my and pure enjoyment. Yeah same time yeah. yeah houdini thank you it was houdini um thank you, and Frank. uh um is it is it strangers something at strangers i can't remember the name of that record either but anyway so i got one last question record. for you and then we're going to wrap it up um okay. so do you see yourself as a comic book artist and creator first and everything else as a bonus or vice versa or is it all equal or is there some other way wait a minute uh I'm not the I'm not the first person to think of like sampling and writing or or even that sort of thing too. I think like people been doing weird stuff like that. Gertrude Stein, like people been doing lots of weird stuff, like taking visual motifs or practices and putting them into You're part of writing, a tradition and carrying it on and other people are gonna follow you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um there's this this book right here. Uh Luis Kamnitzer, I don't even think like I I read just a little bit of this book, but I listened to a um I I listened to a uh an interview with him on Eflux and he was talking about he's a printmaker at one point and then he stopped being a um well he started to get into other things and he kind of had that epiphany about like okay, he's an artist who works in different mediums. That's like how I would answer that question. I'm an artist who works in like I'm an artist and I I don't want to say I'm like a, like, yeah, I always, whenever, I, whenever I'm about to say something that I think is really conceited, I just see a picture of Napoleon putting the crown on himself, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Every time, like, it never, it never fails. I think that's, is it David or um, Like, he's like, he's like, Bleh. but I think like, uh, I, I think of myself as like an artist and a philosopher first who has different mediums of working. 
uh, working out things, asking myself questions with whatever medium. And I don't, you know, like, I don't really think of myself as a cartoonist works when I put it out there. It's like, that's something that I do. Yeah, I hear you. I've done it a lot. Um, yeah. So last uh, question is not a question, it's, it's a statement. My friend Frank, who's here live and is helping us out with sample information, he says he has a milk and cheese nice, board game and do we want to come over and play? <laughs> <laughs> Where though? <laughs> we're, we're here in Philly, very... come visit me. Possibly, but I got to say this and a lot of people are not going to want to hear this, but like board games have like a, 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 a double entendre for me. Did I just, I just open a can that. of worms? I don't. No, I'm just saying like board games. It's like I'm always bored when I'm playing. Them. Oh, like, I do yeah. not. I'm not in the board. I got almost got. I don't think I got it. I almost got that. Um, that that board game that uh, Gita board did. Like it's like some sort of weird game of chess. And I was like, I'm not gonna. Why am I gonna spend all this money on this? I'm never gonna play it. You know. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Still come and visit. Okay. Yes, please. I. I. You know. I got a driver's license now. Whoa! I'm to get a, yeah, I'm trying to get like a um bike license. You know, <laughs> Philly's not too far for a bike ride. No, it's close. Yeah, Just a few hours. Easier away. to park too. Yeah. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for being here. I'm really. It was such so much fun to have an excuse to hang out with you, Ron. Ronald, yeah, sorry. Ronald. You can call me Ron. Y'all can't call me Ron, though. <laughs> yeah. You guys don't call him Ron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Ronald Wimberly, it's been a pleasure yeah. and an honor. No, it's always, always a pleasure. Next time, uh tete a tete. Yeah. Next right. time, next time in person. Yes. All right. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Autonomous Creative. Our show is produced by Matt Madden. Our production coordinator is Lucina Poyakandian. And our production assistant is Rhiannon Sunday. Music is by Matt Madden. And I'm your host, Jessica Abel. You can find all our takeaways, as well as the links and extras we mentioned today, plus transcripts in the show notes. Find everything you need at acpod.show. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And please take a sec to pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. And we absolutely love to hear your reactions and takeaways on Instagram. Tag us at Autonomous Creative. See you next time.